This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Mission School District bans an anti-LGBT group from attending meetings. We look at how our schools have become the latest battleground in our culture wars. Plus, if the province supports the move to the Surrey Police Service, will the city take the province to court? And beer by algorithm. We speak to a Vancouver Island brewery whose craft beer recipe was written by Chad GPT. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast, where it's always happy hour. Let's go to Mission, where on Tuesday, the school board in that community banned a group called Action for Canada for what it says presents information that targets and discriminates and and triggers trauma. The group has also been accused of presenting misinformation. Now, yesterday, uh, Global News Online reported that Chilliwark RCMP took the unusual unusual, um, moment of confirming that books in that community's school library do not, in fact, contain child pornography. That announcement came after the detachment received a complaint uh, that um, that uh, the school allegedly contained schools um, the school library contained child pornography. Uh, the Action for Canada website uh, it certainly talks about the organization to a certain degree. The release in regards to that allegation came after Chilliwack school trustee Heather Moss posted to Facebook to say a member of the group Action for Canada had filed a complaint with the Chilliwack Mounties. The group itself. Uh, on its website, lists a number of target issues it focuses on, including COVID-19 vaccine mandates, political LGBTQ activism, critical race theory, and 5G technology, uh, among many other things. Joining us now to talk a little bit about uh, the organization and the move by the school district to ban uh, the organization for a month for, from its meetings is Shelley Carter. She is the chair of the Mission School Board. Ms. Carter, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jeff. Good afternoon, and a square. Can you please tell me, first and foremost, was there a particular event or moment that convinced you that the banning that you had to ban this group? Well, they so we had the group show up in December mm-hmm. uh, at our in-person meeting at our public meeting, and was very quite disruptive at the end of the of our meeting, and um, it took us quite a while to ask them to leave the building. And you know they were they were upset and and that so we we tried to um, answer their questions but it's very interesting the questions and I kept having to tell them that the questions needed to be you know pertained to the agenda so we had to adjourn and uh, and then have them uh, we you know sort of help them walk out of the building mm-hmm. um, and so when we had them uh, we had two of the representatives uh, meet. Uh, our senior admin and um, sort of, you know, say that they would like to present to us a verbal report. And so um, they, we, uh, they'd given, they'd given presentation procedures. So on January the 10th, um, they came and presented at our committee as a whole, which is a zoom. Mm -hmm. And the, the one representative has quite a language barrier. So she had asked if another lady could come and speak with, you know, speak on her behalf. And so she came to the meeting 
and they were both there on Zoom and said, um, you know, I think I can do it now. So she started speaking. And because of the language barrier, the other lady asked if she could share a, um, a PowerPoint of what we understood was the words that she was saying. So they put it up. Uh, we, let, we allowed the PowerPoint. And um, that became, after about three frames, um, became um, clear that they were, you know, sharing a screen with, you know, hateful, disturbing information. Um, myself and another trustee, um, you know, were saying, you know, you cannot show this. And we have, you know, children on our, our Zoom calls that could possibly end up being in the room with the parents. And, and so we took it down quickly. Um, we apologized to the, the group. And, and so this is what led to our banning. They broke our presentation procedures, our meeting procedures, and so led to the ban for Tuesday night meeting. Now, Motion. in past uh, news organizations that have covered this group, uh, and when you look at their group's website from July, Global News has reported that they refer to the Canadian government as domestic terrorists who are radicalizing Canadian children and youth through the education system yeah. and using them as agents of change to advance sort of a global agenda, I guess, to deconstruct deconstruct societal norms. I think that's the term that they use. Yeah. So is the, in this case, I just want to, and, and, and I don't need to get into the absolute specifics here, but would, would you describe the information that they were providing? Was it anti-LGBTQ? Uh, it was. It was pornographic. It was was it was just very disturbing um, material. So that's why it did not stay on the screen for very long. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, no, it was taken down quite quick. But yeah, they they deliberately, you know, were showing this to to I think get a reaction. And have they spoken on the uh, Soji program as well uh, in the in the year in your mind? Uh, yes, they're they're against anything to do with uh, trans, uh, gender, LGBTQ, 2S. Um, uh, they're, you know, with the banning of the books, they want this happening. They have the, the thought that, that Soji is being taught in school. Soji is a um, resource for our teachers. Um, so, it's, it, yeah, it's very interesting. They're sort of closed mind on how they see things. Now, uh some would argue in a democracy, uh, you, we, we aren't going to agree on everything. And you do have to be patient and tolerant and listen to people's views, and particularly when you're in public office like yourself yep. and, and your fellow, fellow colleagues. Um, how difficult was it a decision in regards to banning this organization for a year from school board meetings? Any decision like this is, is difficult. But, you know, to we had discussion. We had really good discussion. All five trustees are in um, – in step with each other on how we feel about our school district values, that we uh, look at the lens of equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, we don't have any any thoughts that um, that that we agree with any of what this group has to offer, and so we want to make sure that our students, our staff, and our parents that come to our meetings feel safe. And do not have to be, you know, with this aggressive group coming and wanting to um, have their, you know, hateful propaganda platform. What do you think is driving this? Where I'm coming from on this is that there been, there, the, the U.S. culture war, the broader culture war in the U.S. 
is playing out in many cases at our schools, at schools, in many school districts across the United States. This organization and many others like it have run many people to run in, run in various school district races in the last municipal elections in October. Um, at its core, because you've seen this in front of you, do you believe the culture wars are now being played out in school districts across this province? Well, I, I can say, and I can't speak for, but I can say that before, while we were in campaign mode, if you want to say before the election, I did have an individual reach out to me. I did talk to him. He did not say he was from Action for Canada, but he did give me insight to that they were, um, they're they're coming with, um, you know, um, representatives from these types of groups that ran in this last election. We do have three in BC in different districts. Um, that made it, you know, in, they got voted in. And then he also told me that the next election, they, they, their focus was school, school board trustees this time, and that their focus was um, school board trustees and councilmen and, and councilwomen the next time. So the next election. What is driving this in your mind? Your school board chair, uh, as I've said before, the group itself on their website talks about COVID-19 vaccine mandates, political LGBTQ activism. They're, they're, they question critical race theory, uh, 5G technology. I was reading another article, even the idea or concept of a 15-minute city, basically saying that let's, let's live, walk and play and have grocery stores and banks. Everything that we do should be within 15 minutes. So you're much more efficient and it's better for community and all those types of things. So they're not even, I guess they view that everything is sort of a global agenda, a broad agenda by government. Um, at its core, what do you think is driving this in your mind as an individual who looks at this? What do you think drives this? Uh, I think it's the, the way they think of their, their values. Um, uh, a lot of Christian faith-based um, groups. Now I'm not saying they're all, they're all like this for sure. But I think some of it's that. And we do see, you know, we've got social media. It's, and it's easy to, you know, sort of chat back and forth. They see on the media what's happening in the States. And they have, everybody's got different values. So I think when we get, we look globally and you've got, you know, the, the ease of social media, the ease of creating groups on Facebook. Um, I just think that that's where, you know, they find like-minded, you know, people, mm-hmm. and this and this is sort of where it's coming from. And they they hold values that other people do not. They're they're closed on their on their um, thoughts. Now, I, I can't speak for any of them because I don't agree with what they they they're having to offer with, you know, wanting to be um, the way they are with our anybody that's different. Ms. Carter, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. I guess uh, you could call our next segment, uh, I guess the inevitable is is probably the best way to describe uh, what came out of uh, 
of uh, Ottawa today, Canada's federal privacy watchdog uh, launched a joint investigation with three provinces into the controversial social media site uh, TikTok, the application. Uh, The federal privacy commissioner, along with three other uh, privacy watchdogs in uh, Quebec, Alberta, and right here in BC, are jointly investigating um, the streaming application. Um, What they want to do at its core is sort of dig into whether TikTok's practices are in compliance with Canadian privacy legislation and whether there's meaningful consent uh, that is obtained for the collection and use of personal information. Uh, They want to see if the company is meeting transparency obligations. Now, we must remind ourselves that TikTok, while you download it onto your phone, uh, it's uh, owned by uh, a Chinese parent company called ByteDance. And any company with a head office in China, under Chinese law, uh, has to cooperate with the Beijing government if they require any information, because ultimately any company operating in China is ultimately answerable to the Communist Party uh, and the government there uh, in Beijing. And if they say, I want to see the information that you have on you as a TikTok user, the parent company technically has to provide that information. Joining us now to talk a little bit about uh, all of this uh, privacy and uh, personal information that sometimes you do give up uh, to some of these sites is Andy Barrar. He's a, he's a tech and digital lifestyle expert at handyandymedia.com. Andy, thank you for be- joining us today. Hi, Jazz. Hi. So did this surprise you when this announcement came out? No, the only thing that surprised me, it took long, this long, Jazz, <laughs> because we, we've known about TikTok for a long time, about the dangers. You know, the U.S. government bans it on their devices. The U.S. military doesn't allow it on their devices. India banned TikTok outright in 2020. Jazz, even the Taliban in Afghanistan has banned TikTok because they think it's misleading their youth. So we've known about the dangers of TikTok. And I, I've been just wondering, like, wh- what's it going to take? And I'm just so happy that we finally heard about this announcement that they're going to have this joint investigation and get really into the nitty gritty of their privacy policy and the things that we, and especially the youth, Canadian youth, are are uh, consenting to when they put TikTok on their smartphone. Do you think that they will be able, able to accomplish much in regards to providing greater security and safety for users? Well, I hope that they ask a lot of questions, because if you look inside the privacy policy of TikTok, it says that it's going to collect information you provide in the context of composing, sending or receiving messages. Now, that's inside or outside of TikTok. So every text message you send to somebody, TikTok, you're basically consenting that they can look at that. Even if you don't even send that message, it's looking at every single keystroke that you do on your smartphone. And I hope the privacy commissioner asks TikTok Why? Why do you need to know about this for Canadian youth who just want to watch dance videos? Why do you have to make them consent to this? And I think that's the issue because it really is data harvesting. Is TikTok data harvesting for the Chinese government? That's the big concern for countries around the world. And particularly, they got our youth, 76% of teens from the age of 18 to say up to 24, 25 have TikTok on their phone. That's three out of every four kids are using TikTok on a daily basis. And we need to get to the bottom of this to see if we should allow this or if changes need to be made. And so just to confirm what you just said, so if if I have, let's say, I have TikTok downloaded on my phone, the app itself, I'm not using the app, but I'm just sending a text message like everybody else does. TikTok technically has access to that 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 text message? 
Yes, yes. You've consented that they could look at that text text message. And also, you consent that it can know what your phone model is, your screen resolution, the current operating system you have, your phone number, your email address, your, your location, even your contact list. TikTok knows your entire contact list. And I just don't understand why. Why did we allow this? Because when someone downloads an app, Jazz, you and me, we know... Nobody reads the terms. No. We just go we just go accept, accept, accept. We need access to this, accept, accept. And so that's why we need the privacy commissioner to go and look into that and to understand what are you doing with that data? Are you just data harvest? Like why? Why do you have that data? What's the intent? And I think that's what we have to figure out. I mean, even just uh, in regards to it as a tech firm trying to harvest data is one thing. But when a company is answerable to the communist government of China, I mean, what would stop them to say, I need information, even if they are in Beijing, of this potential TikTok user. They happen to live in Vancouver and, you know, they go to protests, uh, protesting uh, the Chinese government's treatment of Uyghurs in China. Based just on that, if that person is a TikTok user, China, the government itself, could go to ByteDance, the parent company, and say, get that individual's email potentially, uh, his text messages, what he or she likes to look at on TikTok as well. I mean, that technically, whether or not even even through harvesting data, just the access to simple things like that, it's technically that information could go to the Chinese government. Do we actually think that someone at ByteDance is going to say no to the Chinese government if they ask for a request of this information? That's why we need to know where this data goes. Is it living on Canadian servers or is it going back to China uh, onto their servers? Another thing, Jazz, is the TikTok version in China. The government, the Chinese government actually limits that to about 40 minutes a day for the youth, and they promote science and education videos. Whereas in North America, they have it unlimited. You can watch it as much as you want, and it's just these little dance crazes and TikTok challenges. So if you imagine what's going to happen in 20, 30 years when you have the Chinese youth who have only 40 minutes of TikTok a day looking at science videos, and then you have North American audiences looking at dance videos, uh, what's going to happen in 20, 30 years when they grow older. And I think that's the major concern about TikTok. And it's the reason why I won't let anyone in my family use it because I just I just don't trust it. And that's why I'm so happy that we're going to have this investigation in Canada to really get to the bottom of what is TikTok and why? Why are they collecting so much data about our youth? Well, I mean, it, if the U.S., as you said, has already banned TikTok on government cell phones and the U.S. military has. Countries like India have just banned TikTok outright in their country. They have access to Facebook and and Twitter and all those other apps, of course. I mean, I'm not sure what we're waiting for. It it should be, not never mind concern to our government and and national security. It should be concern to all all parents out there because there's something fundamentally wrong, the way you've explained it to me, that when you say yes to an app, they have access to everything in your phone. And why would you allow that? Like, why would you want anybody to be doing that? Well, just today, the European Union, the body itself, won't allow anyone to use TikTok on their devices. And so that should tell you something. Let's put it this way, Jazz. We stopped Huawei from coming into Canada and using their 5G networks, their telecommunication infrastructure, because we were worried about, you know, the Chinese government accessing the telecommunication system in Canada. However, for some reason, we allowed TikTok to be installed on the apps of pretty much every teenager in Canada. And at the same time, they're looking at every single 
data stroke, every location, everything that they're doing on their phones, TikTok has the consent to, to be tracking all of that. That's the big worry. I just don't understand how we could allow Huawei to not be in Canada and then allow a company like TikTok to be in Canada. It just like, never made sense if, to if, me. If you put it that way, the Communist Party of China lives on your phone, it's just called TikTok. It's it's, totally it's brilliant, though. It's brilliant. What they've done is brilliant. When it you is. take a step back, yeah, it is. And we're going to just going to be addicted to uh, uh, videos that are, are geared towards what we want to see, dance videos, as you say, and uh, yet they won't present it to their own kids in China. It says a lot. Andy, thank you so much. Thanks, Jazz. Let's talk a little bit about that Surrey police transition, that ongoing uh, soap opera uh, south of the Fraser. Now, Surrey, as you know, over the weekend announced a proposed 17.5% property tax increase for homeowners this year. It is the largest ever uh, in that city's history. And now costs associated with policing are responsible for a good chunk of that. 9.5% of that 17.5% will be for the police transition. Surrey is trying to get rid of the Surrey Police Service and keep the RCMP. Now, uh, the NDP government this week has been hinting that it may move towards the Surrey Police Service. Now, of course, it's not guaranteed, but certainly when you read the tea leaves uh, from Victoria, it looks like it that might be the case. It's still early yet. One of the reasons is, of course, that the RCMP has not convinced the government that they can ramp up hiring to meet the needs as the Surrey Police Service is disbanded in regards to hiring of new recruits. There, of course, is that bigger issue of the 18-month severance that will have to be paid uh, to SPS members. And Chief Lipinski, Norm Lipinski of the SPS, has said that comes out to about eight, uh, $60 million, $60 million. And so that is a financial uh, liability sitting on the books as well. And many have said, with uh, the amount of people SPS has already hired, I think it's about 350 or so, that the the buildup towards the SPS is just too far down the road. You can't unwind it. Um, now, BC's Public Safety Minister, Mike Farnworth, has uh, promised a decision in the coming weeks concerning the force, but many have said that ultimately, if he does go with SPS and Brenda Locke and her council ran uh, against the SPS and said they would want to bring back the RCMP, can a municipal government say no, even though, uh, especially to a senior level of government? Because ultimately, uh, Ms. Locke uh, and her government have to pay the costs. And ultimately, those costs are, by the way, borne by taxpayers. Can a municipal government um, say no to a senior level of government? And potentially, could we be going to court over Surrey RCMP or Surrey SPS based on the decision that the provincial government is making. Uh, I want to ask that question because there may be legal implications to whatever the decision is. Joining me now is John Green. He's a lawyer at John Michael Green Law Corporation. John, thank you for joining us today. Hey, Jeff. So I guess my first question is if, uh, and we have, we're speculating here a little bit, but if the public safety minister, Mike Farmer, says, look, uh, based on the, the the research that we've done, my staff have done, where you are going with the Surrey Police Service, is it something Surrey has to accept or, or are there potentially, based on uh, the, the rules and regulations and law, can Surrey say, no, we won't accept that? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, the province is, the, the city of Surrey gets all of its power from the province. So the province is saying you can't have something uh, even if the law that the, you know the province has written says you can, they can change that pretty quick. So, I think uh, if if in this case, if, uh, if Mike Farworth steps forward and says, "Look, you know, we're just going to keep on moving forward," uh, the best maybe Surrey can do is kind of throw up a feeble sort of uh, legal challenge. But it's going to get if, even if they win in court, the province can turn around and 
basically undermined it by passing legislation that would effectively nullify it anyway. So you just waste a whole bunch of money and get the same result. Because, and correct me if I'm wrong, ultimately based on the rules, regulations that we have in this country and the way we were set up, the municipalities are ultimately a creation of, as you say, the provincial government. Yeah, it's all all comes out of Victoria. So uh, they can do they can do effectively whatever they want. It's it's almost the same as you know when this, they came in and they put in their own uh, provincial kind of school board when Vancouver wasn't doing what the province wanted it to do when the Liberals were in power. They could do the same thing effectively with a municipality in BC. They could take a municipality away and just create a, you know a super municipality like they did in Toronto, and that's been challenged in in you know the Supreme Court found in, in that decision that that was fine. So. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, for uh, like Brenda's friend of mine uh, out there in Surrey, but I think it's an uphill battle if the province decides they want to go in that direction. Um, in regard, so, so ultimately, based on what you're saying here, uh, the provincial government has the law on their side, number one. And so the, the only other implication the province has to worry about is prevent, is political, which is uh, we still need to win seats in Surrey. Are we going to annoy, annoy Surrey residents that may impact us in the next provincial election? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think the, the biggest thing I'd be concerned about if I'm the NDP right now is that's your most important region in the province uh, in terms of swinging votes and stuff like that. And when you're looking at a 17% tax increase and... I am sure that uh, the current city council is going to be saying, look, you guys approved this mess uh, and maybe should have looked closer at the numbers and, you know, uh, and, and, you know, look at the, when, uh, what's his face there, the former Surrey mayor was there. Doug McKellen. Uh, you know, he basically had, he had the, one of the tiniest uh, uh, groups of people possible to support what he did and uh, still managed to do it. Um, I think probably should have read the tea leaves five or six years back and said maybe, this would be a good situation for a referendum, but they didn't do it. So now they're kind of stuck with the mess. And, and I think the mess has a lot of potential blowback for the NDP. It's like I said, uh, like an Easter egg for the Liberals. Uh, finally, they have an issue that uh, but maybe would you know help them uh, gain some traction for the next election. Uh I guess, I mean, we've often talked about a regional police force. Some have even argued one for Metro Vancouver, one for Vancouver Island, and one police force for the rest of British Columbia. And some would say the creation of the SPS would help us eventually get there because it's a municipal force and Surrey has well over 600,000 residents, so it'll be a big force as well. Um, Could that potentially be part of the conversation for government? I mean, you could say, look, it's probably the right thing to do and probably over the long term, if we want to have a BC police force, it's the right thing to do. But I mean, politics will play a role in all of this. Uh, do you think that'll be part of the conversation and the thinking behind the scenes? I think so. There was a last year, an all party committee released a report. And that was one of its big recommendations was that we should have a, uh, essentially a provincial police force, uh, something that uh, is governed closer to home. And we don't have to send, you know, answer to Ottawa on staffing and hiring and and when you consider that surrey is by far the largest rcmt detachment in in canada it really doesn't maybe make a lot of sense that we're having to defer to uh politicians in ottawa on what goes on in surrey people who who never lit you know maybe have even been to surrey before so i think surrey surrey probably if if mike farnworth wants to get ahead of it surrey is probably the best place to start implementing the that those recommendations and you know it can there's uh, non-RCMP police forces on that side of the river in Abbotsford and Delta. And, and you know, it, it wouldn't be a huge step 
to begin looking at uh, integrating those police forces in Vancouver too. So, I mean, that, that would start it down that road. And I think that's, that but, seems to be the direction that all the parties uh, had pointed to. And, and I think it makes a ton of sense. I, I, I guess it comes right down to what elected official or party is going to stick their neck out and do that. I mean, uh, it sounds easy while you and I talk about it, but trying to convince yeah. Abbotsford or some of these other communities to, to amalgamate uh, in regards to policing with Surrey, because the, every mayor will tell you, hey, it sounds great, but Surrey's going to have all the resources and keep the resources there while, let's say, Langley City oh, yeah. may not get what they want or Port Coquitlam doesn't get what they want so that's part oh, of the yeah, challenge no, isn't it sure. yeah well it's the same as when you try and amalgamate uh cities right you're gonna have people fighting tooth and nail like i mean we can't even get north vancouver and the district of north vancouver to amalgamate and you know we have people on both sides paying twice as much for it um you know i, I think this is going to be a 10 to 20 year project and um and, and that's if surrey goes in that direction like right now um, that's probably what it looks like. But, you know, the, the province is going to do what it wants to do. And, and it's better than having the law on their side. They are the law. So uh, so there's no there's no legal ground leg that Surrey is standing on. Many have said, look, even if this happens, Brenda Locke will go to court. She has legal advice that I've been hearing that they, they have a chance, that, that they will take this to the court. But in your mind, ultimately, the, the, the municipalities are a creation of the provincial government. Even if they were to lose in court, they could just bring in legislation and, and change the laws if they required. So they ultimately can't lose. Brenda is, has always been one of the most pragmatic people I've, I've known. I don't think she's going to do what uh, Doug McCallum did and spend a ton of money uh, in court on things that they're going to lose. So uh, if she does that, I'd be surprised. Um, I think probably that she'd be wise enough to work something out with the provincial government and uh, hopefully have some of those costs uh, for the transition born and, and maybe use. I, I was out in I was in the mission school board there when I was younger, and one of the I got some good advice when the Christy Clark just kind of came in as the minister of education. There was a lot of pushback against the liberals at that time, and the advice I was given by this older trustee was basically, you know, just sit tight. Don't complain too much and, uh, you know, like maybe help them with some of their things. And lo and behold, out in the Mission School District, we had new schools and, you know, we were front and center on new programs for the province and stuff like that. I think this is probably one of those times when Surrey might be a good idea to kind of jump in, jump in those waters than uh, the battle tooth and nail waters. <laughs> there you go. Well, that's good pragmatic advice. Uh, John, thank you for your time. You bet. See you, now, by now, you've probably heard of ChatGPT. It's the artificial intelligence bot which can answer questions, write essays, summarize documents, and uh, write softwares. All, all you need to do is give it uh, some index words, phrases, and sentences. It can write news articles, information summaries. In fact, it probably write the intro to this radio segment as well. Now, imagine if you asked this bot to write you a craft beer recipe. Well, over at Whistle Buoy Brewery, they actually did. The Victoria Brewery is making beer using an AI-generated recipe. Joining us now is Isaiah Archer, marketing director and co-owner of Whistle Buoy Brewing. Isaiah, thank you for joining us. Hello, Jess. Thanks for having me. So how did this come about, this, this, uh, this recipe? Who came up with the idea? Yeah, so this just came up uh, through pure curiosity between myself and our brewer, Matt. Uh, he's one of my business partners as well. We just, like a lot of people, had, had recently heard about the technology and we're playing around with it in our spare time, um, sort of just prompting it, you know, to, to do little tasks for us and see what it would come up with. Um, a couple of things we tried getting it to do were like writing captions for social media or 
or like a product description for our website. And then while we were uh, doing that, we, we decided to ask it to, to write a beer recipe for us. And uh, instantly it created a recipe that actually seemed usable, which was uh, sort of how this all came about. Uh, what were the parameters when you asked it to, to make you a beer recipe? Were there specific words you used, a specific type of beer you wish to see? Yeah, so we, as we were planning out our beer schedule for the next, I guess, two months, uh, we wanted to uh, fit a hazy pale ale into the lineup. So we knew we were going to be making a beer, um, a hazy pale ale of some description. And so we just uh, thought, let's let's ask ChatGPT and see what it comes up with. So we said, uh, please write us a recipe for a hazy pale ale, fluffy and tropical. And uh, so those are the parameters, and it came back with something quite specific for us that we actually did end up using for the beer. So fluffy and tropical, or hazy pale ale. That's that. You haven't said a lot there. I mean, you gave it some some basic parameters, and when you got the recipe, like, were you shocked? If, uh, would it take very long for it to give you a recipe, or was it pretty quick? Um, I don't know if you've used it yourself, but it kind of has a little thinking, thinking sort of icon, uh, but then it, the whole thing was probably in front of us in about 10 seconds. So uh, <laughs> normally it takes us a lot longer than that, suffice to say, to um, actually, you know, think about a recipe and, and get get it all figured out. So, yeah, it was it was incredibly fast. And um, were you uh, uh, when you say it, when, when if you were to do it, between yourself, your brewer, and as colleagues, how long would it take to come from an inception to, you know, experimenting a little bit and then coming in with a final recipe that works for you where you can make it and market it? How, what's the timeline generally to come up with a recipe that works? Yeah, so our brewery, uh, we are uh, very experimental in nature. We're a taproom brewery, so we're we're always coming out with new products Every week, almost, we're launching a new beer, so we do have a pretty um, a pretty good rhythm to you know uh, conceiving uh, different beers and, and writing recipes and launching them. Uh, it would take a couple of hours for our our head brewer Matt to to write the recipe. Usually, we'll play around with like some concepts and ideas, and then he'll uh, he'll start uh, getting going. And yeah, it, it would be it would be a number of hours for sure. What what did this uh, hazy pale ale that you said was fluffy and tropical? Uh, I, I get what you're asking. It how did it taste for yourself, who is a marketing director and co-owner of, of Whistle Buoy Brewing? What did it taste like when you when you first tasted tasted it? Yeah, so we tried the beer um, about a week before we launched it, just to, as we try every beer. And uh, there's a quality control element that all breweries have. If you want to be sure that you're putting out a product that you're proud of and it was hitting all the marks uh that we you know the the standards that we're looking for as far as uh the the, the aromas that uh we sort of seek from the hops that we're using and uh the mouthfeel and sort of the, the way that the beer actually looks in the glass and uh you know percentage and and uh, devoid of off flavors that you you wouldn't want in your beer so uh all those things were uh basically checked off and and we were pretty happy with the way it tasted and then we released it uh last friday to the public and so far we've had a lot of positive feedback from our customers so um it's more important what they think i think what do you call it 
Yeah, so this one's called Robo Beer. (laughs) (laughs) Hazy Pale Ale. Um, To do what you do, uh, to come up with a recipe, to to experiment, you know, you're a craftsman uh, in the sense that you, longer you do something, you become really good at it. It comes from experience, it comes from knowledge, it comes from a certain passion. Um, and it's, and it could be your profession. It could be carpentry. Uh, it, it could be being a talk show host, whatever your passion and uh, is, is in life. Uh, that's how you become good at it. You keep doing it over and over again. Would, when you look at chat GPT and what it was able to gift you in mere seconds, uh, do you see jobs being lost over the long term? I mean, if, if it can give to you in a few seconds, a decent recipe that your customers seem to like, that is very scary to a certain degree. For sure. I think there's a lot of things to look out for here, and there's a lot of implications with technology like this. Um, I think for us, we generally are curious about new technology and sort of understand that uh, this is, you know, publicly available all over the world, so people are going to use it. Um, So I think there's definitely, it's good to have a, a healthy skepticism about you know, uh, where this could lead. That being said, I think for our business, I'll just speak for ourselves. um, It's just another tool that we have at our disposal. And, you know, we've all been using tools like Google. And uh, I mean, there's, there's technology everywhere and every modern brewery that uh, doesn't necessarily replace humans. It um, makes our jobs more efficient in some ways. And Um, But, yeah, it's really important to be clear about why you're using the technology. Uh, If you're trying to get it to think for you, then I think that's that's not the intended use and it's not a a healthy way to interact with it. But um, if, you know, I think it's it's probably here to stay and and it's going to become a lot more advanced uh, in the very near future. So uh, to be able to understand it and and learn about what it can do and what it can't do and all these things is is more just sort of like a a curiosity for us. It's certainly not something that we're going to be adopting into uh, our regular routine, but um, we thought it was an interesting thing that um, is part of modern life, so we thought we'd give it a try. Are you going to be doing more of these? I mean, obviously, most of what you do there is is concocted and put together by human beings. But if it's a hit with uh, your customers, the first uh, batch of Robo Beer, can we expect a yearly Robo Beer or seasonal Robo Beer from ChatGPT? It's totally possible. I don't want to commit to that uh, right now. Uh, one of the the great things about what we do is we we are able to constantly come up with new recipes and release new beers um and you know dreaming those ideas up and experimenting with different ingredients is something we love to do um on a regular basis last year we released an nft beer uh but and that was a lot you know that was before all the all the current woes that we've seen in sort of the crypto space um and and if we were to do that now i think uh it wouldn't make a lot of sense but at the time, it was sort of similarly. We we were just curious about the technology, so we gave it a shot. So I think this is uh, probably a similar idea that right now uh, this technology is is now available, and and we think it's interesting to to play with and learn learn about, and we'll see what the landscape's like next year. And I think for us, it's about remaining curious and and um, just trying trying new things. Isaiah, thanks for your time today. Thanks very much for having me.
Well, the federal government is providing BC with a second advance payment of nearly $557 million to help pay for the response and recovery uh, from the devastating 2021 floods. It brings the total provided by Ottawa to more than $1.4 billion to help rebuild public infrastructure, including dikes, roads and and bridges and repair homes as well. Joining us now to talk about today's announcement and the broader recovery is Bowen Ma, BC's Minister of Emergency Management and Climate Readiness. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Jeff. So how far will today's money that was provided by the federal government, or announced by the federal government, how far will it go in regards to towards the total broad rebuild from 2021? So we're really thankful to the federal government for this advance payment. It allows us to continue our work supporting communities as they rebuild and recover. But this work has been happening and will continue to go on. So the province is providing disbursements. Uh, We do uh, work with communities and the applicants from uh, applicants being families, businesses, organizations to get funding flowing to them. But it's really good for us to be receiving these advance payments from federal government because it helps keep the cash flow up and helps allow us to continue this work. Now, it was $557 million today. Uh, in the total so far, as I said, was $1.4 billion. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong here. The total amount promised by auto would be in and around $5 billion? Yes, that's right. The So far, the expected impacts of the atmospheric river events and other disasters in 2021 is expected to be about $5 billion, and that work is, is underway. Uh, would the $5 billion uh, include uh, greater dike protection, uh, climate resiliency, or is that something that's going to be have to be built into future budgets here in British Columbia alone? So the funding that we're receiving uh, from the federal government through the Disaster Financial Assistance Arrangement Program is really for recovery. So it's about addressing the impacts from the disaster itself and a little bit of mitigation ahead as well. But we know that with climate change, we're going to be experiencing uh a greater frequency, intensity, duration of a lot of these extreme climate, uh, pardon me, extreme weather events to an extent that we've never seen before. I mean, what we saw in 2021 in terms of the impacts to people's lives, livelihoods, livestock, the economy was really unprecedented. And unfortunately, we would be fooling ourselves to think that that was a one-off event and that that couldn't possibly happen again in the future. So that means we've got a lot of mitigation work to do. So our province is transitioning the uh, way that we approach emergency management from focusing only on recovery and, uh, pardon me, on response and recovery to all four stages, uh, pillars of the Sendai framework. That includes mitigation and preparation as well. And uh, that speaks to the work that uh, the funding that we announced earlier this week, an additional $180 million to help communities prepare for future disasters. So not so much on the recovery side, but mm-hmm. really looking forward on the kinds of uh, structures and the kinds of planning that need to happen to support us in, in a future emergency. In future uh Flood protection, um, when you look at the communities like Abbotsford, um, you know, they need $2 billion uh, for their flood protection strategy. And I think $700 million alone is their pump station. You look at the diking system in Abbotsford and Surrey and communities like Delta, you're probably looking at $10, 12 $13 billion. Um, 
we, do we have a system? Are you working towards a system that actually addresses that specific issue as well? Because I can't see, even with the resources that provincial government has, it cannot do this alone. I'm going to I'm going to assume something like diking, especially. You're going to have to go and work with the federal government to find those dollars because the numbers that we've seen certainly you know are in the twelve, thirteen, fourteen billion dollar range. Is that work being done now in regards to our diking system specifically? You are absolutely right, Jazz. The amount of work that we have before us as a province, as a country, really, in the face of global climate change is immense. But we also know the value of investing in prevention is worth, a, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. It's, it's good economics, but also it's good for people in communities and the lives and livelihoods of those people in those communities. And so it's work that has to be done. You are right that uh, we will have to work with the federal government to um, receive support, financial support on this. And those are conversations that we're having in uh, some areas already. Uh, For instance, in the city of Abbotsford, we recognize the importance of having all levels of government coalesce around a shared vision and uh, principles around how we actually mitigate for future disasters. And when I say all governments, I don't just mean the federal government, the provincial government, and the city of Abbotsford. I also mean First Nations in the area as well. We have to have a better way of moving forward in how we protect our people and communities. Uh, It is often said that any decision in government now must have a climate lens uh, to it as well. And I'm not just talking about your ministry, which is emergency management and climate readiness. I'm talking about finance. I'm talking about education. I'm talking about many other ministries as well. Uh, Give me a sense of, you know, is that being done today? Are you seeing that behind the scenes? But more importantly, what would you like to see more of in regards to that lens being applied to a broader government conversation? It is absolutely the case that even as we do the work that we have to do to drive down greenhouse gas emissions, to take action on climate change through our Clean BC strategy, that we will still have to prepare for the impacts of climate change that have already arrived in British Columbia. And I know that uh, in the creation of the Ministry of Emergency Management and Climate Readiness, uh, Premier David Eby sought to address just that. Over the next year and a half, we will be uh, undertaking a process to develop a province-wide approach to disaster and climate risk assessment. And that will help, um, our hope is that will help inform uh, government uh, more broadly, but not just at the provincial level, but all levels of government as to the kinds of risks that their communities are likely to face in the years ahead as climate change continues to to change the face of of extreme weather events here in this province. Did you think you'd be the Minister of Climate Readiness? When you got into politics, I mean, I mean, I got to ask because it's it is a ministry that is of the moment, and what I, what I mean by that, it is addressing the issues that are before us. But you know, when you get into politics, uh, you know, we talk about big, broad issues, but mm-hmm. one doesn't one day wake up and go, "I'm the Minister of Emergency Management and Climate Readiness." What is that like? Well, you know, when I was Uh, So I was elected in in 2017, and even then, just six years ago, I would say that, broadly speaking, um, society as a whole talked about climate change as though it was something that was real but kind of far away, something that our children or our grandchildren or even perhaps our great-grandchildren would have to really grapple with. And today, it's very clear that that 
is a luxury of a thought process that we can't really afford to have anymore. It, it's here. It's not something that's in the future. It's impacting us today. So you're right that uh, the creation of this ministry is timely, and I think it is necessary, and I'm so proud to be able to, to do this work on behalf of British Columbia. Well, Mr. Ma, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. Over 100 employers, including municipalities, small businesses, and nonprofits across BC, have committed to pay their staff and contracted workers the new living wage, which was recertified as living uh, by, uh, by was certified, sorry, as living wage employers. Joining me on to talk a little bit about the living wage uh, is Anastasia French. She's a provincial manager at Living Wage for Families BC. Anastasia, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. So I know we talked back, I think this has been a few months now, quite a few months in regards to the living wage. Uh, talk to me a little bit about how your campaign has been going. Yeah, so um, every year we partner with the CCPA to calculate what the living wage is for families across BC. Uh, and the living wage is the, base, the bare bones budget that a family needs to be able to make ends meet. This is to pay for things like food, clothing, housing, really just the essentials in a family budget. Uh, and in November, the living wage went up to $24.08 an hour. That's a 17% increase from the year before, largely driven by how much more expensive rent and food are. Um, and what we've been really delighted is that this year already, over 100 employers have already committed to lift the wages of their staff and bring them up to the new living wage. And that means that over 500 workers in D.C. have received a pay increase um, to be brought up to the new living wage. And and when you say 100 employers, can you sort of talk about some of the uh, businesses, private and public sector, you're talking about? Yeah, what's brilliant about the Living Wage Employer Program is there's all sorts of different organisations. You've got municipalities like the City of Victoria, City of Port Coquitlam, um, Quinell, places like that, to small businesses, whether that's um, Pulp Fiction Books, uh, Massey Books uh, in downtown Vancouver, or construction firms, um, to non-profits such as the Parent Support Society, Aunt Leah's Place. Lots of different organisations doing lots of different things, but the one thing they're committed to doing is making sure that both their staff and their contracted workers can afford to be able to pay the bills. How real is this? I know you've you've mentioned a few names there, different organizations, private and public sector, nonprofits as well. How real and feasible is this, do you think, to do this broadly in the private sector? Well, what we've seen, what's great is, and what we found with the living wage employers is they found that the reason that they become a living wage employer, they're, they're drawn to it for the kind of moral reasons. They want to make sure that their staff can be able to afford to afford the essentials like food and rent. But they've also found that actually it makes economic sense for them as well and that they've been able to kind of um, retain staff, especially in the middle of a labour shortage. Lots of employers have told us that actually they're paying a living wage not just because they want to, but because they have to. And they can't find good staff unless they, they pay them a living wage in doing so. Um, and then also they get to stand out amongst their competitors um, and they, they found all sorts of benefits from doing so. So we know it's difficult um, at the moment. Um, businesses have a really difficult job with, with the living wage increases. Not just their labour costs have increased, but also lots of other costs as well. Um, but what we're really proud about with these 100 plus employers is that they've committed to making sure that their staff are at the centre of their business and what they do. How do you convince government then? And what I mean by that is the, the minimum wage uh, was raised uh, a couple of years ago. It now goes up by, with the cost of living, uh, but business organizations say they're not necessarily against paying people more money, but it has to fit within their budget, especially small businesses in this province. Uh, our minimum wage isn't close to $24. Uh, how do you change that in your mind? 
It's, it's vital that the government um, make plans to increase the, the minimum wage. They talked they talked about potentially lifting it to the, to the living wage, and they they commissioned someone called the Living Wage Commission to look at that. Um, but that report is now like two or three years overdue. So we would encourage the government to look again at how they can bridge that gap between the minimum and the living wage, because we know it's much much easier for employers to get on board and join our program when that gap is smaller and that also helps those workers who work for businesses where their employer doesn't necessarily uh, want to voluntarily lift them up to the living wage but helps make sure that those workers who aren't earning a living wage can still afford to make ends meet. But the, do you, don't you think that your lobbying efforts should be focused on government if that's what you wish or business but in regards to uh, moving that wage to a, a number that is much more acceptable in your mind because $24 is a lot different than uh, you know just over $15. Um how do you see moving other businesses in your direction? Because $24, as I say, I'm not complaining about that, but there's a lot of businesses who say, look, I'm struggling as well. I just cannot afford that. The gap between a minimum wage and $24.08 is still quite significant. Well, the really, the really good thing about the living wage campaign is it's kind of multifaceted. There's one bit which is encouraging and lifting up those employers that are committed to paying their staff a living wage. And that's what we're doing. We're doing at the moment by celebrating those employers that have stepped up and paid a living wage. But we also do a lot of advocating at government and calling on government to do things to make life more affordable. There's more that government can do, both with lifting the minimum wage, but also by doing things like building more affordable housing. And the government have done an amazing job, actually, of making childcare much more affordable for families. And that's really, really helped make a difference. And the living wage would be a lot higher if it wasn't for those initiatives. They now need to do things to kind of address what they can do to make life more affordable for the other big essentials in a family's budget, which is like housing and also food. What can be done to kind of make food more affordable for people? Because workers and every time you go to the grocery store, you see how much more expensive things are. And it's getting really, really difficult for people right now. It is. And I, one thing I have heard, obviously, from folks is that the on the childcare side, it has helped a lot. But obviously, we have a lot more to do when it comes to um, housing and hopefully, fingers crossed, that uh, the food inflation slowly heads in the other direction as well. Anastasia, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.